If you have kids and they're anything like mine, you'll know one of kids' favorite expressions. Whenever something doesn't go their way, they're liable to exclaim, it's not. (laughs) Even if the situation has little or nothing to do with fairness, it's not fair. Now, kids... If you have adults in your life, and they're anything like the adults in my life, whenever things don't go their way, you might hear them mumble, it's not fair. (laughs) If they don't say it out loud, you know they're thinking it. It's not fair that this happens to me. I'm a good person. Or at least, maybe, God has made me a good person now, so, so why is this happening to me? It's not fair that I suffer. It's not right that I hurt. It's not just that I'm held back. And we need to all learn to accept that oftentimes life in this broken world is not fair. But that doesn't mean it won't bother us. And as Christians who believe in a God of justice, it can especially perturb us. And we can easily grow entitled to a a life of a good life, a prosperous life, a healthy life. We think that we deserve this, that we've earned it. But God's word draws a distinctly different picture for us of what our life is to be like as followers of Christ. We've been going through the book of 1 Peter together on Sundays lately. If you have a Bible, we can turn there now together to 1 Peter chapter 2. We'll be starting in verse 18. What Peter is going to address for us today is that topic of unjust or unfair suffering. Something that I believe all believers will face from time to time, but it's something that's also becoming increasingly common in our world today. But before we begin to look into this passage, let's submit our hearts to the Lord in prayer first, shall we? Heavenly Father, as we come to your word, I pray that we would humble ourselves beneath it, that we would know your authority, your truth, And that we would live our lives under that authority. Lord, you are King of Kings. We are not. And so we come now expectantly wanting to receive from you. We pray that your Spirit would do that in us today. In Jesus' name, amen. So one of Peter's main messages in this letter lately is how we don't belong here, right? How... Christians are exiles and sojourners, temporary residents of where we live now. However, we are still here for an indefinite length of time, and so we must still be good citizens. And this is what we saw a couple weeks ago. Verse 13, you can read along with me. It says, Be subject to the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. 
Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. Now the main gist of that pa- of these verses was that God wants his people to live within society, we're still in society, but to be subject to the human authorities for his sake and to be free to honor everyone, him most of all. So we are paradoxically both subject and free. But what does this look like played out in life? Verse 17, we saw it gave some great broad applications. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, that's the church, fear God, honor the emperor. Now in verse 18, where we'll start today, Peter is going to get very specific. He's going to start addressing specific, particular groups of people. But as we shall see, the the implications, the ramifications are not necessarily nice, pretty, or pleasant. In fact, as exiles and sojourners, we might end up in some very negative situations. Now, before I dive in here, I need to fill you in on some background info on the world of Peter's day. When Peter says, back in verse 13, be subject to every human institution, there were several levels to that. Right? There was the government, which consisted of the emperor and governors and senators and others in power. But on the ground level, there's another institution. One of the absolute staples of the Greco-Roman society was known as the household. It was the most commonplace, most mundane, everyday structure that everyone was a part of. But it was also the most valued so it included the, a household consisted of anyone who lived together in one house or in one estate, including fathers, mothers, children, but it went beyond just immediate families. So there was often a number of extended family members that lived in the same household, and then there were also servants or slaves and hired caretakers of various kinds. They lived on the family grounds. They were considered part of the same household. So this household idea, it could include a a significant amount of people all bound together and all working together toward a distinct goal, as a distinct social unit or institution. Now you may think of, of something like Downton Abbey without the castle and British accents. Okay. In, in Roman moral philosophy, these households were really seen as the foundational unit of society, of civilization. So everything else could crumble and fall apart, but if households held together, their civilization and their way of life could survive. In our day, we have very much privatized the home. So as long as you don't break any laws, what you do in your home is your own business. But in the first century, what people did in their home was very much society's business. Because society depended on healthy, ordered households as their foundation. And because of this, because households were so esteemed, the way that outsiders, when they came in and they viewed it, it was very closely observed. So Christians came along, and people worried about the impact that they would have. Will they change 
households, the way they work, will they change the relationships, will they change the way they're ordered, thus undermining our society as a whole. Given how countercultural Christianity was, it was very possible. But Peter and the other apostles in the Bible never suggested wide-scale societal changes. Instead, they tried to show how the Christian life could be lived out within the existing societal structures of the day, including the household. Karen Jobes comments that Peter is especially concerned that the freedom of the gospel might be, be expressed in the Christian household in such a way as to not provoke unnecessary accusations against Christianity. At the same time, Peter understands that the gospel of Jesus Christ is subversive to the Greco-Roman social order. Peter affirms the socio-political order on the one hand while simultaneously reworking it on Christian principles. So that's what he's doing here. You may think, well, we don't have the same kinds of households today. So what we're going to read must not actually apply to us. Not so fast. Things may look different now, yes. But we have many of the same kinds of relationships in our lives. We have husbands, wives, children, parents and other family members. We also have people that we work for or people who work for us. And you may scoff a bit as you read this passage that it will apply to you at all. But I encourage you to set aside your 21st century Canadian assumptions for a bit. All right, consider how the words that Peter spoke into a very specific cultural situation long ago may yet apply to your life. Whether today, tomorrow, or 10 or 20 years down the road. Verse 18. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing, when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But when you do good and suffer for it, this is, and suffer for it, you endure. This is a gracious thing in the sight of God. We'll pause there for now. The main command in these verses is for servants to be subject to their masters, which reiterates the command we saw before in verse 13. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution or every human creature. Households were one such institution. Masters were one such creature in authority. But the main theme of these verses isn't to be subject or respectful. The main theme is all about unjust suffering. Unjust suffering that we may face from other people in our lives. Part of being people who are subject and free is obeying and respecting our authorities. But what that implies is that we must be ready to endure suffering that they may bring about. Here's how I'd phrase the main point of this passage as it translates to us. All right? As subjects and free people, 
We must be ready to endure suffering we do not deserve. In our freedom and subjection, we must be ready to endure unjust suffering that we don't deserve. Peter doesn't use the usual word for slave here as he does back in verse 16 where he says live as servants or, or slaves of God. He uses a word that literally means domestics. So servant is likely a good translation. It referred to anyone who is under the rule or control of the head of a household. But the majority of those people would still have been considered slaves. Now, when you hear slaves, don't think of the racial slavery of America a couple centuries ago. Slavery was quite different and far more diverse in Peter's day. You could become a slave through a huge variety of circumstances. You could be captured in war, kidnapped, be born into a slave family, or you could also sell yourself as a bond slave or a bond servant to pay off a debt. Not Overly different from trying to pay off student loans working at Tim Hortons. (laughs) But there was also a huge spectrum of types of slaves and slavery conditions. As Tom Schreiner explains, many slaves lived miserably, particularly those who served in the mines. Other slaves, however, served as doctors, teachers, managers, musicians, artisans, and could even own other slaves. It would not be unusual for a slave to be better educated than the master. Still, slaves in the Greco-Roman world were under the control of their masters, and hence they had no independent existence. They could suffer brutal mistreatment at the hands of their owners, and children born in slavery belonged to masters rather than the parents who gave them birth. Slaves had no legal rights, and masters could beat them, brand them, and abuse them. So it wasn't a good thing. And yet, despite the potential of abusive behavior, Peter tells servants to respectfully submit. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. Now, first glance, that might seem like an endorsement of slavery or harsh treatment. But talking about living in slavery is no less an endorsement than talking about living in the Roman Empire is an endorsement of imperialism. Or talking about responding to persecution is an endorsement of persecution. Remember, the Bible constantly addresses people in the situations that they already live in. They're already in this situation. And overthrowing the establishment of slavery in Peter's day would have been unthinkable. Not to mention counterproductive to living honorably and spreading the gospel. Besides, Miroslav Volf explains that the call to follow the crucified Messiah was in the long run much more effective in changing the unjust political, economic, and and familial structures than direct exhortations to revolutionize them would ever have been. 
for an allegiance to the crucified Messiah. Indeed, worship of a crucified God is an eminently political act that subverts a politics of dominion at its very core. So, instead of trying to radically transform the structures of the day, God's word more wants to radically transform his people into his holy people inside the nations of the world. And we might still think, well, why not at least speak of slavery more negatively? Right? But that's forcing our modern mindsets onto a first century writer. We can't do that. Besides, that ignores the fact that this isn't the most shining description of slavery. Right? Peter clearly calls bad masters unjust or evil. He's not defending them. He recognizes that slavery often equaled suffering for his people, for God's people. So slavery was an unideal, it was generally negative, even terrible situation to be in. But Peter wasn't trying to spark social revolution, he was trying to spark sanctification. Okay, so... How does this apply to us, then, who are mostly not servants and definitely not slaves? Quite a bit, actually. See, while Peter was directly talking to slaves, almost all Christians of his day tended to have a lot in common with the slaves of the day. As many of them were losing social status, losing favor, losing power in society, they were, essentially, they were descending the social ladder. But the slave already occupied the lowest rung of the ladder, the least status, the least power. And therefore, the slave was a paradigm, an example, a role model, if you will, for the whole Christian community. And as our own rights and privileges and influence shrink in Canada today, we can take a lesson from those who followed Christ with none of the above. The main principles here that apply to us are all about submission and suffering. So first on submission, Edmund Clowney explains that Peter's admonition reveals in pointed fashion the heart of his teaching about submission. He does take for granted faithful servants on the part of Christian household slaves. In a sense... This is the least they can do to show their willingness to serve God where he has placed them. Focus on that last sentence. Willingness to serve God wherever he places them. And ask yourself, are you willing to serve God wherever he places you? In power or poverty? In authority or servitude, in management or domestic duty? Are you willing to serve God there? It's part of being subject for the Lord's sake to every human authority over you. So are you? We're not only to be subject to authority, it says we're actually to respect them. 
Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect. Whether or not you feel respect for someone, we're to show respect to them. Now, if God has placed someone in authority over you, he wants you to submit to and respect them. And this includes domestic and occupational authorities. So really, it is the closest parallel for most of us is that we are employees on some level, working for someone else. So, the person or the people that you work for, how do you treat them? Do you follow their orders? That's being subject to them. Do you speak to them respectfully? With all respect, Peter says. Or, whenever they're not present, do you whine? Do you mock them? Do you take part in your workplace's disdain for your boss? You might extend this principle to include teachers for students and parents for children. Whenever people in charge of you drive you crazy, what do you do? Do you you disrespectfully fight back? Or do you take the high road, refusing to talk bad about them, submitting to their wishes? You might wonder, why? Why should we treat authorities in these honorable ways? And really, it goes back to our fear of the Lord and our Christian witness in this hostile world. We're to honor everyone, remember, with the hope that they too will glorify God. So, consider the way that you submit to authority or the words that you say about authorities in your life and ask yourself if they saw all your behavior or they heard all the words that you spoke and then you were given an opportunity to speak to them about Jesus, would they want to listen to you? Now, for some of you here today, all the people over you in life may be really good people. And so this all sounds pretty easy to you. It's easy to be subject to good authorities. Those Peter would call good and gentle or considerate here. For others of you, your bosses may be downright miserable people to work for. Your manager may be mean. Your supervisor may seem like a supervillain. So Peter's words may sound daunting to you. And yet Peter's words are especially meant for such negative situations. He says, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. Other versions say the harsh or the unreasonable masters. Of course, slaves receive this, right? Slaves would often receive harsh, unjust treatment at times. And so how was a Christian slave to respond? And today, how should a Christian subordinate respond to unfair or harsh treatment from harsh masters? The point is, we can't opt out of obedience just because someone else is cruel or wicked. If what they're asking you to do is evil, then you can and should opt out of that. But if that's not the case, you can't just not submit because they're a terrible person. 
And you, you work for the government, and you can't refuse to obey your boss just because they annoy you or you don't like their political party. You work in retail. You can't cut corners or neglect your duties just because your manager was heartless to you the other day. Believers, we are held to a higher standard, right? Believers are to be subject to our earthly masters, even if they're unjust. And when they're unjust, we have to be ready to suffer unjustly. And we think, again, why? Why? That makes no sense. Why honor or respect undeserving leaders? Or why should we put up with mistreatment from hostile people? Well, Peter heard these objections coming a mile away. And he answers them. Look in verse 19. I never saying, be subject with all respect, for this is a gracious thing. When mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. There are two key reasons here, I believe, for why and how we should be ready to suffer unjustly. Okay? So as subject and free people, we must be ready to endure suffering we do not deserve. First of all, being mindful of God's eternal perspective. Be ready to endure suffering we do not deserve, being mindful of God's eternal perspective. When we suffer, it is so, so easy to get nearsighted and focus only on our immediate pain. All we can think about is how it's making us feel right now. We forget that there's a much larger and longer story in progress. And remembering the big picture can actually help us endure short-term suffering. This is why Peter says, For this is a gracious thing, when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. When you suffer unjustly, mindful of God. This last week, we had some car trouble. A wheel bearing and an axle was dying on us. And we knew that there was an issue, so we had a plan to get it fixed midweek. But then the sound went from a, the sound the car was making went from a single loud low hum to ten constant loud clicks and clunks and rattles. It was like someone threw a wrench in a wood chopper. A light came onto the dashboard, the brakes started weakening, the wheel start the wheel was shaking as you drove it. By the time that I was driving into the shop, the whole van was actually wobbling. <laughs> it was nerve wracking. And it was difficult to be mindful of anything but the vehicle's issues. When our lives seem to be falling apart. It can be difficult to be mindful of anything else. But the fact of the matter is that our hurts are meant to draw our attention to God. We can't solve all of our issues. We can't make everything better. 
And so in our really desperation, we should be looking outside of ourselves, looking to God. You likely know C.S. Lewis's famous quote, Pain insists on being attended to. God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our conscience, but shouts in our pain. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. And so uh, if you're hurting right now, and I know that there are hundreds of kinds of hurts across this room, let your suffering draw your attention to your Savior. Let it draw you there, to draw your attention to God who graciously cares for you. Let it draw you to your knees in prayer. Let it draw you to worship like Job. He gives and takes away. Blessed be his name. For this is a gracious thing when mindful of God one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. And Peter says there that it's a, a gracious thing. The term means something like commendable. The NASB says, for this finds favor with God. It beckons God's grace to us. And verse 20 seems to point us ahead to receiving a reward one day. It said, for what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? What credit is suffering justly? None. By implication... There is credit in suffering unjustly. Credit that you will receive one day. Credit from God. Credit in glory in eternity. For this is a gracious thing. For what credit is it when you suffer and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. In the sight of God. So from God's point of view, you're doing a gracious thing. And God sees everything. God knows everything. God sees the whole picture. He also owns everything. It's all his to give and take away. And he says, if you suffer for my sake, for good, I will give to you abundantly, generously. Uh, we, we, we have a really pathetic, measly idea of rewards today. Take roll up the rim, for example. We get excited about winning a free coffee or muffin. How much greater will an eternal reward from an all-knowing, all-powerful, all-gracious God be? Remember, this is he who graciously gave up his very own son for us. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? How can we not be excited about what's to come? Find comfort, even if it's a small amount of comfort now. Find comfort in that. Now, let's pause and talk about unjust suffering, though, for a couple minutes. 
Because some of you may be thinking, you know, suffering wrongly may be gracious, it's also idiotic. Right? Or you may be thinking, worse than that, wouldn't this mindset just enable abuse? And wouldn't this encourage someone who's being abused to just stay in an abusive situation? I'd say it could, but that's reading a lot into Peter's words here. He doesn't say that, and therefore I think it's a wrong interpretation of this. First of all, Peter was talking to people who likely couldn't do anything to change their situation. They had no power. They couldn't change it. So people who were suffering and didn't have an out or an escape, it was unavoidable. If they could have gotten out, would Peter have encouraged them to do so? I think it's likely. After all, if you think about it, the early church saw fleeing from persecution as a valid response to persecution. So why wouldn't that be the case for other forms of oppression as well? Secondly, Peter was specifically addressing the right response to undeserved suffering, which would have been applicable whether or not someone stayed in a situation. Because the pain or sorrow of abuse lingers, as many of you know far too well. Even if you got out, even if you got to a safe place, you'd still need to endure suffering. Third, enduring abuse does not in any way defend or justify abuse. It is still unjust, it is still evil, and it will still be judged by God appropriately. That's part of the whole reason to be mindful of God. He will vindicate us. Okay, Psalm 103, 6 says, The Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. It's coming. So, oppressors or abusers, beware. In our day, we encourage avoiding suffering at all costs. And so, it's hard to see any benefit from enduring it. Right? And it's only when we, think, we take that eternal perspective that I believe things become a lot more hopeful. We have to keep our eyes on that. Consider what God sees. Consider that God will justly reward and judge. That's being mindful of God. Also consider what kind of message that enduring and undeserved suffering can send to others around us. It is an active demonstration of our trust in God. Listen to how Edmund Clowney puts it. He says, what does, what does have point and value for a Christian's testimony is their response to unjust punishment. Such treatment offers a golden opportunity to show the uniqueness of Christian service. By patiently enduring unmerited abuse, they show the opposite of a servile attitude. They demonstrate their freedom. If the Christian responds in kind, good for good, evil for evil, he becomes merely a victim when he is treated unjustly. In burning resentment, he seeks an opportunity to repay the evil. But if he bears the evil patiently, he has broken the chain of bondage in the power of the Lord. He shows his confidence is in God's justice. 
Now we need to realize that not all suffering is reward-worthy here. Some suffering is very much deserved. We will sometimes suffer the consequences of sinful choices that we make in life. For example, if you pursue money greedily, and you and your money dries up, or you lose your family because of it, or any other consequence, that's suffering for sin. Sometimes you may suffer hostility from other people, but not because you were good, but because you were a jerk. Or you you spoke the truth in an unloving way. And that's what Peter's talking about here. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? There are also many other forms of suffering in this life that are often undeserved or unmerited. From sickness, death, and mourning, to job loss, financial hardships, relational turmoil, mental illness, potty training. That's not a joke. (laughs) But all these various forms of suffering... You may not deserve them, and you'll still need to take God's eternal perspective to heart in order to endure them. You've still got to take the long view. However, that's not usually suffering for good. That's suffering for being human. For living in a broken world. And then... They're suffering unjustly because you've done good. Like slaves in Peter's day may have got beaten for perhaps obeying God rather than men. Today, this could include friends unfriending you once they realize how seriously you take Jesus. It could mean a peer, even a family member, laughing in your face. That hurts. This could mean family distancing themselves from you, even cutting you off. We know this happens in places like Iran and Pakistan all the time, but it can happen here as well, even if not to the same extreme. Your family may despise you, they may judge you, they may hate you when you try to share your faith. It's... Also, another form of this, it's very possible some of you here will lose your jobs or your licenses in the next few years because you have to take a stand for something that you believe in your conscience. I'm looking at the the doctors, nurses, and lawyers right now, but you can bet that teachers and journalists and government and media people will be next. Others might not lose jobs, but you might not get hired in the first place. You'll have to deal with unemployment. Listen, I am not saying all this to scare you or to worry you about the future. Neither am I saying this to downplay your present pain or your potential pain down the road. I am saying that because of these pains, There's grace. 
way more grace coming our way. Grace is, is pretty much the point of all this. It's the other reason that we need to be ready to endure. Not only do we receive grace from God for it, we show grace to others through it. So, as subject and free people, we must be ready to endure suffering we do not deserve. Secondly, living out the grace of our calling. As we endure unjust suffering, we live out the grace of our calling in Christ. Peter keeps saying, suffer unjustly because this is a gracious thing. A gracious thing. And then, verse 21. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. So we're called. For this you have been called. Called to what? We've been called to, to suffer sometimes unjustly, to display God's grace. This means that part of our purpose on earth as Christians is to demonstrate grace. When God gives us grace, and when we hold out grace to others. Grace is favor for the undeserving. Or even favor for the ill-deserving. And who deserves our honor or respect less than those who hurt us for no good reason? All through this message, you may have been thinking, okay, sure, honor, good authorities. But there are so many people in this life who simply don't deserve my respect. Not just authorities, other people around us, family members, church members, co-workers, whatever. So many people don't deserve our respect. In fact, with the way that they treat me, they deserve the opposite. They deserve my disrespect, my disgust, my fighting back, my hatred. And I'd answer, yes, they probably do. And that's the point of grace in the first place. Point is, every one of us deserves God's disrespect, disgust, fighting back, and wrath. But instead of his judgment being poured out on us, it was poured out on Christ. And in so doing, God offered unthinkable grace to the ill-deserving. This is what Peter says in verse 21 and following, which we're going to look at a lot more closely next week. Verse 21, "For For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. This is the gospel. The gospel of Jesus' suffering, death, and then resurrection should be our primary motive and reason for enduring hostility and injustice today. Because this is what Jesus faced from us and for us. He didn't deserve the beatings. He didn't deserve the hostility, the nails, 
the asphyxiating pain and the humiliating death. Deserve none of that. And yet, he endured the cross, despising its shame, and is now exalted in glory. You see what he did, though? Jesus held on to God's eternal perspective for the joy that was set before him. And he poured out grace upon grace to sinners like you and me. If you have not received his grace yet, it is offered freely to you today. Christ also suffered for you. If you will reach out and take hold of it by leaving your sins, clinging to the cross, receiving his grace. And if you are already a recipient of his grace, you are called to show grace to those around you, even if they hurt you. In fact, especially if they hurt you. Christ is our example. I know that's not easy. But I also believe the Holy Spirit can help you here. You may cry out, unfair to all of this. And you're absolutely right. Thank God. Because fair is hell. Grace is heaven. It's not fair that we might suffer hostility here and now or or that we must show grace to others. It's also not fair that God gives us grace in the first place. And yet he did through Jesus. Bore the just penalty for sin. I mean, face it. The opposition you may be facing isn't fair. Persecution, if it comes, it's not going to be fair either. But our response needs to be unfair as well. We need to be ready to show grace. Clowney says, It is the privilege of those who are sons and daughters of the Most High to imitate the magnificence of their Father's mercy. They rise above simple justice to reflect God's goodness and love. Unthreatened by evil, they can overcome evil with good, and in the midst of suffering, show mercy to those who would show no mercy toward them. This is our calling. This is who we are now as followers of a gracious, crucified Savior. If this isn't what you signed up for, get used to it or get out. We've got to count the cost. But any cost that we pay now will be so much more than worth it in the end. 
if you're not willing to forgive, if you're not willing to be merciful, if you're unwilling to endure, ask yourself if you've truly seen your desperate need for mercy and if you're truly following the Savior who, who showed you way more grace than you'll ever be asked to give. Daniel Ritchie, a man who is born without arms. Talk about unfair. He said this once. Our pain gives us a platform. The question becomes then, what am I saying to the world in the midst of my pain? God's grace to us is meant to be displayed and not hidden by our silence. As our pain shouts to a hurting world, may our lives always sing of the fact that God is glorious even when our circumstances are not. May may we be ready to face with grace whatever God brings our way so that we may better see and show his glory. Let's pray. God, that is our prayer. We may not feel up to this task. Please enable us, empower us to face it. Even when it hurts, help us put our eyes on you. We need you so desperately, God. Thank you for your grace to us. May we go resting in that. In Jesus' name, amen.